Good evening. How are you? On the eve of this approaching hurricane, I know one thing. There are long lines at the gas station. I, I thought to be here by 7. I like to just come. It's been a very busy day in my office, and I was looking forward to settling in with you all at prayer at 7. And uh, Melrose, the small town in which I live, was out of gas. Everyone. So I had to drive to another town, and there were lines wrapped around the gas tank, and uh, and I finished that finally, and then had to sit for a train. <laughs> so uh, it's been an interesting day. But as long as I have coffee and half and half for the hurricane, I'll be fine. <laughs> Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so grateful to you for this um, chance to join together and commune with you, with one another, and to hear and receive of your word. We pray, Lord, open our ears tonight that we might hear you speak. We want so very much, Lord Jesus, to know you better, to encounter you as more than a figure of history or literature, but to know you in the now and to experience you as a reality and to know you through encounter. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's open together, please, to a verse I referred to, I think, during our last time together. Now, I won't be able to complete this message tonight. Not nearly. So, um, we'll complete this uh, in the near future, but Let's let's turn to uh, John chapter eight, please. And let's center in on verses thirty one and thirty two. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Could you say that together with me aloud? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. That's a remarkable statement. Now, there are a lot of layers. I mean, there are, I guess there are ontological and epistemological ideas associated with that. But tonight I want to focus in on a simple idea that Jesus is identifying for us here two radically different perspectives, an earthbound perspective, and heaven's perspective. And truth allows us to begin viewing ourselves, others, and life itself and its myriad challenges from a heavenly perspective, from God's perspective. We can begin to um, know things as they really are rather than merely as they appear to be. We can know the truth and knowing the truth will set us free. Well, set us free from what? What does the truth make us free from? This one's obvious. If you know the truth of something, then you are free from lies. The truth sets us free 
from the captivity that is inherent in the lies that our adversary works to promote in our lives. Let's read that once more together. Continue ye in my word. Then are you truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So it's imperative that we remain in his word. That's what's going to lead us into truth. In John 17, uh, 17 Jesus said, Sanctify them. Through thy truth, thy word is truth. God's word is truth. Now, I think when we consider it in that light, we might imagine truth as having at least two expressions, or two states, objective truth and absolute truth. Absolute truth is truth as God's word declares it. Objective truth is another matter. We have all been, through the work of Jesus Christ, saved. Paul, in writing to Timothy, said that uh, God is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Suggesting that when we embrace the free gift of salvation, God has made available to us through Christ then the salvation that Christ wrought for every man becomes ours personally. It becomes ours experientially. It is available to every man, but it, it becomes ours in fact when by faith we receive it. So there is this absolute truth that in Christ all are saved. But we can only enter into that through objective truth. We have to acknowledge our sinfulness. I have to acknowledge my need for a Savior. God has saved every man potentially in Christ, but it only becomes um, effective in the lives of those who receive it by faith, who can objectively acknowledge their sinful state and in so doing, Embrace the free gift of salvation. And we read that, that uh, Jesus became sin so that, he, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So it's an extraordinary exchange that took place. And God's Word declares this truth to us. It, it is our responsibility to discover this truth, to acknowledge it, and then to receive it as our own. It has tremendous implications, obviously, with regard to something as consequential as salvation, but it impacts the whole of our lives. I want you to look with me at Mark, the fifth chapter, and we see this uh, on display, uh, this idea, in a rather unique way. A man has come to Jesus desperately seeking a miracle. Verse, uh, let's begin with verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. 
one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up and on seeing him fell at his feet and implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Now this next encounter is, is so marvelous, but we're going to skip over this. Um, to verse 35, while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Now, I want you to note the urgency with which Jesus inserts himself into this conversation. The uh, messengers have come from the synagogue official's home and explained to him, there's no need to trouble Jesus any longer. Your little girl is dead. Now, this man had pinned his hopes on Jesus arriving at his home while his daughter was still living. And he believed that if Jesus arrived there before she died, she would live. Now she has passed. It seems that all hope has been lost. It seems that this story has come to a tragic end. But Jesus, in, in the King James, interestingly, it says, immediately Jesus said, he inserts himself into this conversation and he says to the man, don't stop believing. Don't become afraid. Continue to believe. And I find that interesting. It suggests to me that what Jesus wished to do, the outcome he wanted to see in this man's life was somehow contingent on this man's response to this crisis and to what Jesus was saying. And I think we would do well to ponder that. They continue on their way. Uh, let's see, verse, uh, verse 38, they came to the house of the synagogue official and he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And this is an important question. Is she dead? Is she dead? Objectively, she's dead. However, from God's perspective, from a heavenly perspective, according to absolute truth, she is not dead. She's still alive. We'll see this again in John 11. Jesus has another unique exchange at the death of Lazarus. But uh, she is dead, objectively dead. But Jesus is not speaking from an earthbound perspective. He is speaking speaking to this situation, and he's speaking regarding this situation from God's perspective. And he's encouraged this man to join him in viewing this circumstance from that perspective, hasn't he? 
Now, before I go further, I want you to consider the application of this simple idea to your own life, your own experience. Are there times when it may be important for you to choose to view your circumstance from God's perspective rather than an earthbound perspective? Now, let's talk about what Jesus was not doing. He was not engaging in some elaborate form of denial. No, no, this is too painful. She's not dead. I refuse to believe that. She's not dead. That's not what he's doing. He's not avoiding this uh, situation because he's, he doesn't want to deal with the pain of that circumstance. Denial, most of us are too bright for denial. Avoidance is our drug of joy, usually. <laughs> um, Jesus is doing neither. And he's certainly not lying. He is addressing the situation in a fashion that allows faith to fashion a new outcome. So he's doing it carefully. They began laughing at him, verse 40. But putting them all out, he took the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. Saying to the, uh, taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talithakumai, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given her to eat. So this choice that the man made to continue believing to resist fear in the face of such horrible news. How many parents are here? Can you think of anything worse than hearing that your child has died or your spouse has died? That, that is, I, it, it's difficult to imagine any worse news. And this man has just received that news and Jesus immediately... He doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so very sorry. Though he must have felt uh, for the man. But he wanted to reshape the outcome. And so he said simply, don't begin being afraid. Continue believing. Now, what is he suggesting by, by, by urging him to continue to believe? He's saying simply that nothing has really changed. The only thing that has changed is what you can see, what is apparent to the senses. But nothing has changed with regard to God's perspective. And that's important. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul states simply, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. In another place he writes simply, 
that we look at the things which are not seen rather than at the things which are seen. It's a little paradoxical. We're to look at things which can't be seen and not look at things which can be seen, but that is a, a call to faith. There are moments when we can afford only to believe what we discover written in this book. And that's why Jesus urges us to continue in this book, to feed on it. Uh, God spoke to Joshua as they prepared to enter the promised land and urged him to meditate in this day and night. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Man shall not live. I don't want to just survive. Do you believe life is a wonderful gift? I do. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift God has given us. And I think he means for us to enjoy it. Now that doesn't mean there's not going to be difficult times. This is a fallen world after all. But God has given us a remedy for that. And then there are also those moments when some may face persecution and may die for their faith. And if that were to happen to me, I would, I would, uh, I would go rejoicing. I would commit my family into the hands of God and His care, just as Jesus did when He was on the cross. Do you remember He said to Mary, Behold your son, and to John, Behold your mother? God, I think, would care. And then uh, we would rush into the waiting arms of our Father God. Um, but absent that, <laughs> that, yes, there will be challenges, but life is a wonderful gift. And God means for us to live it fully. And that means we must view His Word as necessary to life on that level. Man shall not live by bread alone. That's, that's a statement of fact. You can exist, you can survive, but I don't think you can thrive in this life, flourish in the purpose that uh, God placed you here for unless you're continuing in His Word. Um, let's flip over to, that's an interesting story. Wouldn't you agree there are some important lessons in Mark the 5th chapter? Let's look at John 11. We find a similar um, experience that Jesus has with the disciples. John the 11th chapter. The beginning with verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, friend of Jesus, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. I was in Bethany. This was years ago. I was in Israel for uh, several weeks and uh, a couple of weeks. And, and I was walking through Bethany. I remember this uh, gentleman came walking uh, out uh, of his yard, a small wooden fence there, and he said he was trying to beckon me to come in to see this wonder. Rooster, who is direct descendant of cock which crowed three times. <laughs> Direct descendant. <laughs> I think there were people who went in there, probably took pictures. Look, this is him, I'm telling you. I plucked a feather. Um, that's not a part of the message. <laughs> It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, 
whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Real quickly, I want to point out something that this is not saying. This is not saying that God sent this sickness that Lazarus, or that God might be glorified. God is forever employing whatever unfolds in our lives to His glory if we will, in the midst of Christ, to simply believe. Redemption is, is always present, waiting to blossom the moment you and I believe. And He can re-engineer things which were meant for evil and turn them into something absolutely marvelous and uh, an occasion by which He can receive glory. This sickness is not to end in death. Now let me ask you something. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, does Lazarus die? Yes. Now he died, he was quite dead. The little girl, she was only stone cold dead. Lazarus, if you recall, was stinking dead. <laughs> he died. And yet here Jesus says, this sickness is not to end in death. Is Jesus playing games with our language? Is, is this some form of semantics? No. Jesus is speaking truth from God's perspective. This sickness is not to end in death. He died, but did his life end in death? No, it was placed on pause. <laughs> but it didn't end in death. Well, at least not at, at that point. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them all. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now there appears to be a little contradiction. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and so when he heard he was sick, he stayed away for two more days. That's an odd way to love, it would seem. Keep your place there and turn with me to 1 Peter, the 5th chapter. Let's begin with verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. How do we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand? Verse 7, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. It is humbling to cast the whole of your care on Him because it suggests that you're bringing nothing other than problems to the table. No solutions, no resources, no advantages, just a problem. And it's important that when we enter prayer, we enter it that humbly. Lots of times we come to prayer uh, with a request and a set of blueprints. Lord, I have this need and also a swell idea how to resolve it. Now, here's what I suggest. <laughs> Do you have a pencil? Are you writing this down? <laughs> And we provide and we begin to pray, Lord, do this, 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 and this. Rather than simply casting our care upon Him and allowing God to be the architect as well as the awarder of the miracle. And that's difficult to do. 
but uh, by God's grace, we can. Because He cares for you. Be, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Say these next three words with me aloud, please. Verse uh, 9, but resist him. Hmm. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered a while, a little while, actually the word endured, after that you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God will do His thing. But He is working in us something grand, something extraordinary. Faith coupled with patience allows God to work in our circumstances, but more importantly, it allows Him to work within the interior of our lives and fashion us more perfectly into His image. So it's not as if we're depositing a coin in a soda pop machine when we pray, trusting the Lord for a miracle. Start kicking the machine. Where's my drink? What's going on? I've been robbed. No, it means... We have to continue to believe even when it appears nothing has changed. And often that is the case. Well, I prayed and nothing happened. And so we conclude that because nothing has happened, God has either, uh, God has chosen not to work. or he hasn't heard our prayer. It's funny the things we can imagine. The children of Israel, they finally arrived at the threshold of the promised land. Forty years marching about in the desert. They've been waiting for this moment. They send spies in and they discover there are great walled cities, there are giants. They've discovered there is challenge awaiting them in the promised land. And they made a tremendous tactical error and it cost them dearly they imagined that the presence of challenge suggested the absence of God that's a big mistake the presence of challenge means challenge is present that's all we live in a fallen world you'll hear me say that often it's something we have to reconcile ourselves to we live in a fallen world we're not alone so many people uh, view life as if God and God alone has a hand in their affairs. Yes, God is at work, but we have an adversary, and He is at work. And it's a terrible, terrible thing to ascribe to God the works of our adversary, and yet sometimes Christians do it. And rather than listening for the voice of His Spirit, first reading the Word of God and discovering truth here, and then listening for the voice of His Spirit, so many people try to um, ferret out of their circumstances an understanding of what God is saying as if they're reading tea leaves. I, I remember one of my first pastorates, a woman came up, her, her water heater had broken, and so she was delayed that week in her work, and she had to get it repaired. And she said, 
what do you think God was telling me through that? And I was a young pastor, but I, I had enough sense not to say, I think he was telling you you needed a new water heater. Um, but I think her water heater broke. And she needed to get a new one. But how many times, because we haven't cultivated a really intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit and learned to hear His voice, and we haven't spent time in His Word, we spend time trying to discern the will of God by reading the events of our lives, like we're reading tea leaves. What could God be saying? Well, I can tell you, He's definitely speaking through this book. Very definitely. And then He's given us His Holy Spirit. And we can have a conversation with Him. Um, I recall, and, and folks, you can, you can learn to hear His voice. It's not going to be audible. I, I mean, occasionally, I guess it might be. I've never heard the audible voice of God, but I've heard God speak. I remember Beth and I were dating. We'd been engaged uh, by this time. And I was at her home late one night. We had classes. Uh, no, school was over. Uh, we both had to work the next day. And I was there late, and it was about 11.30, and I needed to return home. And I thought, um, oh, well, let, let, me, let me get going, and I couldn't find the keys to the car. And I was looking everywhere. Beth joined me in the search, and we're searching everywhere and cannot find the keys. And so I thought, well, let, let me pray. Lord, where are the keys? And I heard distinctly, under the arm. I thought, no, that's crazy. That's just my, that's just my voice. So another 15 minutes turning the apartment upside down, nothing. Again, Lord, where are the keys? Under the arm. And this time I was standing in the living room and I saw the sofa across the room and a sofa has an arm. So I walked over to the sofa and I lifted the cushion and there were the, the, um, the fabric meets each other, you know, from the, the bottom to the side. I, I'm not a furniture guy. <laughs> the thing meets the stuff, right? <laughs> there was a tear in the, in the lining. We, we were college students. <laughs> And I reached my hand through that hole, and there, under the arm, were the keys. And I pulled them out, and I drove home. There was nothing incredibly momentous about that night. I could have walked home. I could have held a cab. Um, I couldn't have stayed at the apartment. That would have been kosher. Um, I needed to go home, but it wasn't. There wasn't. It wasn't life-threatening situation. There was nothing uh, uh, urgent about it at all. But I wanted to go home, and and God's standing ready to help, and He knew where the keys were, so I listened for His voice. It's that simple. Well, you're a minister, so there's something. There's a unique uh, link you have there, so you can hear. No. This is. I'm simply one of his sheep. And as one of his sheep, I hear his voice and I know his voice. If we learn to, if we cultivate this um, ability to distinguish his voice from among its imitators, we can all have these conversations with God. Now, it's a fun story, it's helpful, but I don't want you to have the idea that... Uh, there aren't moments where I'm going, Lord, what do I do in this situation? I have to really seek the Lord. And, uh, and, and sometimes you have to 
discern, is this God speaking or is this, are these my own ideas? It, but over time, we can cultivate a hearing ear. And I believe God wants to have this sort of intimate relationship with all of us. I had a reason in sharing that. What was that? Oh. Um, after we've suffered for a while, after we've endured challenge for a period of time, miracles come. God works in those situations His will. But in doing that, He's perfected us. And we can, despite what we're enduring, listen for His voice and hear it. And just like Jairus, hearing Jesus say, don't be afraid, keep believing, we can be calmed in those moments and continue trusting God even though the challenge appears to be persisting. It appears things haven't changed at all. It's at those moments in the absence of... of uh, having an encouraging and timely word from the Lord that you and I can fall prey to fear and begin to doubt that God is at work. And it's very easy to do. I mean, it's the most natural thing in the world to do. Okay, let's go back to John 11. Is, is this helpful to you this evening? Good. I'm going to try to close up in just a couple of minutes. Um, John the 11th chapter. So Jesus loves them. He loves the two sisters. He loves Lazarus. He's heard that he's sick and he remains some distance uh, in, uh, away from the city in which they were living. Then, verse 7, after he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. His disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Follow this conversation closely. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Clearly, they do not want to return to Bethany. They're frightened of returning there. They're frightened of meeting an angry mob who might stone them. So they've all put on their physician's hat and said, oh, well, if he's sleeping, a good thing. Let him rest and recover his strength. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. Verse 14 so Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Now he had just told them he's asleep. Jesus was choosing to speak a language that comported with the outcome he was anticipating, which was life. But now in order to communicate to the disciples, because they simply haven't caught on, he says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I want to encourage you to ad ad adopt and acquire the language of Jesus. It may seem that you're not speaking plainly. But I want to speak in a fashion that uh, liberates 
the, the brawny arm of omnipotence in my circumstance. I want to speak in a way that opens the door to God and shuts the door to the devil. I want to speak in a fashion that harmonizes with a believing heart rather than a fearful one. So a choice has to be made. I am glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, this in an Eeyore voice, I think, let us also go so that we may die with him. <laughs> so they are not prepared to believe. They, Oh, great. So Lazarus is dead. And the Jews hate you there. Definitely let's return. You'll receive a hero's welcome. So they're, they're just uh, sort of resolved to go with Jesus to Bethany and die. So when Jesus came, verse 17, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to see him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was what? He was troubled. By what? Now, there's a very tortured interpretation among some that Jesus wept because he was saddened by Lazarus' death. Or he was saddened by what he beheld, uh, the weeping that was going on around, and he was experiencing human emotion. This is not what I'm reading here. Remember, Jesus stepped into just such a situation in the synagogue ruler's house, and he said, what are you crying for? She's not a... She's not dead. She's only asleep. Why would Jesus arrive here and, and cry because Lazarus is dead? Oh, God. He's, oh, wait a minute. He's not done. He's, he's coming out of the tomb. What was he, why did he weep? And what so troubled him? Everyone he has encountered in this situation, despite embracing him as a resurrection in the life, cannot see beyond the tragedy cannot believe anything beyond what has already transpired. 
He was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. That was the end of the story. So Jesus did not lie. He wasn't engaged in some uh, silly game of semantics when he said Lazarus is asleep. He is carefully choosing to articulate a vision of faith. To speak in a fashion that harmonizes with absolute truth rather than simply conforms to objective truth. Truth as our senses can confirm it. Let's, uh, let's, well, let's see. Hmm. Anyone want a homework assignment? Would you do me a favor? And over the next couple of weeks, I think, uh, Jackie, did you say in about two weeks, uh, we have a, a wonderful guest speaker that will be here Thursday from India. Uh, this coming Thursday. Uh, the next Thursday, I will share the exciting conclusion to tonight's message. <laughs> um, I'll share uh, part two. Um, do me a favor. Uh, during the interim, read Mark, the fourth chapter, the parable of the sower. It's very, very exciting, and it's very pertinent to what we've been talking about here, and I wish we could go into it tonight, but um, it would be thoughtless of me if I did that. Instead, we will close with uh, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I hope this was uh, helpful and encouraging to you tonight. Let's begin with verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So when should we rejoice in the Lord? He's emphatic here, isn't he? Rejoice in the Lord always. By the way, again, I tell you, rejoice in the Lord always. That means throughout the day, we are to rejoice. Now, this isn't conditional. This is a directive that we've been given. That we are to follow no matter what. But the circumstances may not seem convenient to rejoicing. I, I don't think that lets us off the hook. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This is such a crucial, such an important bit of advice that Paul 
state it and then restate it in order to underscore its importance. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. That's a little challenging, isn't it? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What does that mean, with thanksgiving? Well, when we pray, we are anticipating that God is now going to answer that prayer. And if uh, we follow um, the principles he outlines in Mark the 11th chapter, we actually believe when we pray, we receive this prompt. And so if you've been given a gift, what is the appropriate response? Thank you. So we're now giving thanks. For what? For what we believe is going to happen. We give thanks for what we believe God is doing and for what he will do. We give thanks. Then what? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your... That's really where the trouble is, isn't it? How many of you have left a place of prayer, bathed in wonderful peace, and left right back out into the middle of the problem, and, and, and it seems your faith took wing and flew away? And the peace has disappeared, and it's been replaced with anxiety. This sort of peace actually mounts guard over our hearts and our minds. It helps to protect it, to fend off fear. How do we maintain that? Remember what we began with. Continue ye in my word. Say that with me, please. Continue ye in my word. Jesus is urging us to spend time in this book. And we have so many wonderful tools today. MP3, um, streaming audio. Uh, we, can, we can deep dive into the Word of God virtually any time we want. And I want to encourage you to do it. Continue in my Word and you will know the truth. So he says finally, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there be any excellence, if there be anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think on these things. So we protect our minds by meditating on things which are in harmony with God's Word. Or as Colossians uh, 3, I think 1 through 3 says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So this... How can you? How many of you can see that this requires a lot of grace? We're not naturally inclined toward these things, but we are supernaturally equipped to do them. And we can cultivate these spiritual practices through the grace of God until they become internalized. And they become our reflexive reaction rather than something we have to summon up and, and uh, I know that's the will of God for us. Father, thank you for this time together. I pray that you um, take this word and breathe life into it, Lord. Give us understanding. Open our eyes. 
Help us to become joined to it. In Jesus' name, amen.